2: Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Carrie Carbonaro, author of The Money Queen's Guide for Women Who Want to Build Wealth and Banish Fear. Carrie Carbonaro is a certified financial planner with an MBA in finance and has over 25 years of experience in financial services. She's currently a managing director with United Capital and divides her time between New York and Florida, where she's also a yoga instructor. Uh, to learn more about Carrie, uh, you can go to MoneyQueenguide.com. So, the Money Queen's Guide for Women Who Want to Build Wealth and Banish Fear. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Carrie. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Well, your book has been disca- described as uplifting, informative, financially grounded book that helps women obtain and then protect financial success through the evolution and growth of their professional careers and personal lives. Okay, what does that mean to us as women? What really specifically is the premise of the book?
3: The premise of the book is financial literacy for women. And the pitfalls that women sometimes fall into of that money is complicated or I don't need to know about this or uh, I, I don't want to know about this, I don't even want to talk about it, um, a budget is a four-letter word, uh, like a diet, and I don't want to <laughs> do it, you know, all a lot of negative
2: emotions surrounding money. Yeah, I have to agree, or I'll personally I have to agree. I could check off each one of those things that you say. Somehow I muddle through, I get through, and I get, that's what you say kind of, I guess, in the book as well. We do have financial success. We go to our jobs. We do well, but when I... What, we, what you're saying is like future planning or making sure that our future needs, our future goals are met, we don't seem to be able to do that because we are afraid. What are we afraid of? Well, I think it's interesting.
3: I think, well, every, obviously every person is different, but if I could make a generalization about the women that I've worked with, including my friends, family, and clients, I would say that women are afraid of running out of money, they're afraid of getting their money taken from them. They're afraid of being in the, in the, in the wrong relationship with the wrong man. They're afraid of their husband dying. All
2: of the above. Well, do they start out that way though? I mean, let, let's take, uh, the, and, and I would assume it's different for different groups, like the millennials, the Gen X, the baby boomers, and even the older ones, the traditionalists. Yeah. It, it changes as we kind of go down the ladder, I would imagine, or maybe it doesn't. But um, so start out, okay, as a guide, which is, this is the money queen's guide. And we're talking in general terms, like what, what what are we doing wrong we're afraid of all those things you described. so how do we kind of break through that so that we you're saying that we don't act because we're afraid we don't plan ahead we don't do specific things with our money because we just want to we can't deal with it is that what we do well no because that makes us sound terrible as a as yeah, it does <laughs> <laughs> That makes us sound like we're not 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 functioning which is
3: definitely not the case okay. i just think that women based on my experiences that we don't want to deal with it. I'll, I'll just take my best friend for example. So she, you know, just doesn't want to think about it. She wants to live for today and everything's going to work out fine in the future. And she doesn't want to have to think about it, plan for it. It's just going to happen. I think that that's probably
2: or 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 even Wait, better. Is she single, is, is she single or is she is she single? No, she she's actually
3: divorced right now with okay. two kids. But you know, busy as heck single working mom doesn't have time to plan for the future. She'll think about it when her kids are grown. You know, I think that that's a, that's a reality as well for women because they're, they're always so busy and not thinking strategically about long-term finances.
2: Okay. So she's one Now, example. it's interesting
3: because as a social worker for you, I yes. find a lot of times when I'm meeting one-on-one with my clients, I have to play the social worker role but more on you know on the money side, and you know why do you feel this way, and why is why are you blocked, and why do you not want to move forward with you know making decisions that are going to help you,
2: and a lot of times the answer is I'm afraid. Where does that fear come from? Like you know, you obviously you've had a lot of experience, as you say, you have to social work your clients even before you help them financially. So as a group, uh, what you know, where does that fear come from, or? Uh, you know, different for men, obviously, women have a right. kind of... This, uh, you know, you it's, say... uh,
3: it's funny, I also talk, talk about it in my book as um, you know, the bag lady fear and um, the designer bag lady fear. So you even have people like successful women who make over $200,000 a year who still worry and, and stay up at night saying, oh, my God, I'm going to potentially be a bag lady, even if I'm, you know, financially... At the top one percent of the of of my profession, or of of female earners, so there's still a percentage of of us who make a lot of money. I'm actually probably one of them, although I've done so much to combat the fear that that's why I've turned my whole life into this profession and trying to have not have m- myself lose sleep over not having enough. So I'm like the extreme example, I would say, of. Of of this fear. So where does it come from? I've had it my entire life. I was born with it. I don't want to be a bag lady on the street. I don't want to run out of money. I don't want to not have choices. I don't want to have a man take my money. All the things that I don't want. And sometimes, guess what? You can't protect yourself because sometimes the worst happens. And then, you know, in my case, um, I don't know if you've read the book yet, but I talk about my story about my horrible, horrible, earth-shattering divorce where I almost lost everything.
2: So your fears and, were founded. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it could kind of it, it played itself out, right? I mean, this is what you were fearful of, that you're going to lose all your money or that someone's going to take it away, or, you know, whether it's in a divorce or something else. But then it happened to you. Yeah. So, yeah, so continue, so tell us so what did happen? I mean, here you are, you're worried about those kinds of things and yet you're very you have an MBA, you're so prepared, you're I mean, you are the expert. You're on, right. you know, I didn't even mention all the different uh, money matter shows, CBS, Fox News. Here you are. Women are going to think, "Well, why would you have ever been afraid?" I mean, how how if if you're afraid, what about us? How can we manage our money? I mean, I'm exactly. a social worker. Well, I don't have a chance. Me,
3: but... It's funny. It's taken me a long time and a lot of therapy to get to the point where I am today where I could actually counsel other women and have them not be afraid. But ironically, so my horrible situation played itself out, um, and it was my worst fears coming true. However, it's interesting. Now, I did always, always, always practice what I preached. So I always had a massive emergency fund. Um, I always had saving for retirement. I always had my ducks in a row. I always had a low mortgage. I always had... Um, you know, saved a large amount of percentage of what I, what I made. So I always practice what I preach. Never for a moment did I not in my entire life from the time I started working at, you know, 22 years old. So all of that being said, I had somebody coming after me where this horrible divorce where I was actually for the first time in my life spending more than I made because I couldn't help it because I couldn't make it fast enough. And because my attorney bills were about fifteen thousand dollars a month. Yeah.
2: incredible. Yeah, and, and, and unfortunately, I think that's that's very common. I mean, uh, you know, going to a a divorce, which is obviously unfortunate. But okay, so this happened to you. Um, terrible divorce, all your fears, but yet you were still taking care of yourself along the way. Maybe we should I get was. specific. Yeah, you were, but other women aren't uh, for some reason. They go to work, they, whether they're earning 50000 or 500000 right. they still have the same fears and they still aren't prepared or don't prepare themselves. Okay, so take us through like you do in the book, I guess, the 20s, 30s, 40s. What do we do? How, you know, we've talked about the fears and yours personally, but so how do you, in the Money Queen's Guide, how do you get us through that and build our wealth and kind of as you say in the title of the book, banish those fears. Sure. Well, a couple of things. In the beginning of the book, I talk about um, important,
3: important uh, themes. So you know, chapter one is, are you a material girl? And I say, everybody makes mistakes. It's how you recover that matters. And that's really important. And then I talk about the emergency fund. And I talk about when uh, I used mine, which is during the divorce, the first time in my life I had to deplete my entire emergency fund, but guess what? That's what it was there for. And if I didn't have it, I can't even imagine this position I would have been in. Because I I practice what I preached. You know, don't allow emotions to control your financial decisions and you need to find a counselor even if you have to pay for it. It's just how like do you do anything in else. The context a, of, you know, with how a do social worker com- or whatever. I mean... You you have to get good counsel. You have to get good advice. You have to get an attorney when you're going through a divorce. You have to get a uh, good counsel when it comes to money as well.
2: But let's go back to like you get it. You're in your 20s or late 20s. Let's say you've been a single person, a single woman, earning your own money. Suddenly you get married, let's say, and so now you're combining. You know, it's a it's a contract. How do you prepare yourself in your 20s, say, with a partner or with a spouse? What do you do? I mean, do you? Are you doing this separately from them? Or are you doing it together? Or you know, how does that well, work? Well,
3: again, I would say it depends. But I, I, I like to start out with in your twenties. You know, you're building your financial life um, personally, and this is my complete personal opinion. I don't think anybody should get married before thirty because I don't think you know who you are yet in your twenties. Just based on my years of experience, um, I'm sure that's not the general. You know, tr- tried and fast rule. I'm sure some people can make it work in their 20s, but to make it really work, I really think it should be 30. <laughs> so by the time you're 30, you already have have college. Hopefully, you have um, working experience under your belt. You hopefully have your student loans paid off. You have uh, you know your 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 401k that you've started. You have an emergency fund. You know how to do a budget. So by the time you're 30s and you're ready to merge with another person, you then are merging yourself and your money.
2: Okay, so you're a lot more savvy and you've hopefully at least followed some of the guidelines that you would have, that you have in your book. So then you're prepared to kind of merge with somebody else and be able to to do that because you've had your own experiences correct all right and i think the most important thing
3: number number one rule if you're going to get married with to somebody is to sit down and disclose all financial assets and liabilities as soon as possible as soon as you realize you might be starting to get serious with this person That's how, that's how strongly I believe in this. And it's, it's almost like getting naked. It's almost like going to the doctor and getting naked. You have to do the same thing with your finances.
2: Yeah. I think that's scarier with your finances. It's easy to get naked. (laughs) I think you get, I think that's the simple part, but the financial stuff that you're talking about, that's much more difficult. Okay, so you're getting naked with your partner financially. Is he or she doing the same?
3: They better be, otherwise you, that's a red flag. Yeah. I mean, it happened to me, so I know. I mean, if, if, if something there is not right, or you just feel like something's just a little bit off, it probably is. And women have fabulous intuition, and all we have to do is listen to it.
2: Yeah. We don't act on it. We have the intuition, but we seem to push it away. We know it's there. I think you're absolutely right. What about prenuptials? Is that part of the, what we should always have? Let's say we get married at 30?
3: Well, actually,
2: it's funny. It
3: really does depend on the situation. I mean,
2: if you're 30 and
3: you have, you know, a 401k with 50 thousand in it, and he has a 401k with 50 thousand in it, and you have you both have no debt um, at that moment in time, I don't think that there's really a need for a prenup because if you're equal in in assets and equal in income and equal in everything else, the prenup is really to protect one person over the other, whoever has the most assets. In most cases, it's not the woman. You know, in some cases it is. I mean, and any of my clients who have more assets than their soon-to-be husband or wife or, you know, if they're same-sex, then I would say um, absolutely you, you need a prenup, but it, you have to know why you need it. You're, you're, protecting, you're protecting your assets going forward and your premarital assets. And also if you keep them separate, if you keep premarital assets separate – then they're not subject anyway if a divorce ever happened, which is another whole story.
2: Yeah. Okay. So that depends on the circumstances you're saying, the prenup, obviously. Okay. So now we're in our 30s. And so what are we doing wrong? Are we still fearful? Are we still take us through the 30s? What should we be doing to prepare either for divorce or sickness? I mean, there are a lot of catastrophic things that can happen to us. Yeah. Uh, Losing a a job uh, yes. that, well, uh, it's the... funny that's what I put in my
3: 30s I put buying your first house and I put losing a job or quitting your job or getting divorced which also can go into your 40s or, or wherever some of these are, yes. are fluid fluid decades <laughs> so um, yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of different things to do when you're when you lost your job or you quit your job there's you know buying your first home make sure that's a huge financial decision um, and i 've seen i 've seen disasters let 's just put it that way, especially when the market is going crazy, you know obviously before the financial crisis of of eight nine you know we had huge inflated home prices, especially in Florida, more so in Florida than in my New York market. Uh, new York was always high, but it's that 's nothing new, but florida was was just crazy bubble and So I saw people make really bad decisions, you know, by overpaying for houses and putting, you know, little or no money down and then filing bankruptcy and losing houses. And then I even had uh, a client who they came after them, even though they sold the house, they still had a judgment against them that they were still paying off a house
2: that they didn't own since 2006. All right, here's another one. What about putting your and i think women tend to do this more than men i'm also generalizing but what about you know women get married and then they have maybe they come to the marriage with a certain amount of 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 money uh and they end up putting it in their spouse's name like do you or uh, my suggestion or i've always well, thought you know keep it and I, I have friends who have done that and it's been disastrous so like to keep your money in your own name you can always use it absolutely. In however you want. i mean yeah.
3: I, I actually advise I advise my clients, if you have premarital asset money, you can just keep it in your name solely, period. There's no reason to commingle it. And what's interesting is if you actually take that money and put it into a house that's jointly owned, then it's commingled. Yeah. So you lose you lose that, which means that even if it was yours and it was an inheritance, let's say, you had 100000 in, in an inheritance in the bank, And you put it into the house that you both jointly own. Guess what? He's entitled to half of that if you get divorced.
2: Yeah, and you know, Carrie, I think one of the things as I'm listening to you, you learn this when you get divorced or going through the process of divorce. You really need to know it. I need to read your book, but you need to know these things before. You know, yeah, just so that you.
3: (laughs) Yes, it's interesting because I had somebody recently who read an advanced copy of my book, and she said. Gosh, I really wish you gave this to me when I was in my twenties, and I said, I didn't know this in my twenties. <laughs> I said, I'm good, but I'm not that good. It took yeah. me a lot of years to learn this.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, it's good that you did write the book, but I mean, it is, it is true. I think people, it's, and women read it after the fact. We want to read it before the fact or have this kind of information. What else stands out? What are some of the other, you know, uh, we, what are some of the other, what would you say, key factors that we need to know as women in terms of first get over the fear, be able, first be able to talk about it. I think you said this in the beginning of the interview. I think as a culture we don't like to talk about money. We don't talk about money. We talk about sex. We talk about everything else, but talking about money is a taboo. How mo- you know, even how much money do you make? You'll, you'll, I mean, you'll tell your girlfriends how many men you've slept with, but you won't tell them what your bank account is. Absolutely true. It's funny
3: because since uh, since what I do for a living is financially invasive, and I'm constantly asking the questions, I'll ask anybody anything, and I don't think it's weird for me because it's what I do for a living. So it's interesting because I I actually think that's half the reason I went into the profession because I'm so interested in what people make and what they have that I, I said I can't believe I get to do this for a living and I get to you know find out all find out what's under the hood for for every person that I meet. So for me, it's fabulous, but you're right. Still, still nobody talks about it. And it's funny because when I wrote in the book, you know what my salary and income was in the book. I think it's the first time people have seen it. But I wanted to bare myself and say, okay, talk about being naked again. Here's here's my income. Here's my assets. So just so I could show that this is, you know, for me, this is what I do for a living. So I'm used to seeing it. But you're right, women do not talk about it. They do not talk about. Budgeting. They do not talk about their assets in the bank. They do not talk about investing. Although you know we do have a couple of those women's investment clubs, but I don't think they're that popular anymore. Um, men are much more interested in that than women are. Um, however, whatever for whatever the reason. Um, so back to one other thing I wanted to say that you said about when women get married and combine, and combine accounts, what I tell my clients who are getting married is that they should have one joint bank account that they pay the bills from, you know, uh, and I do it based on percentage of income. So if you're, if you both make the same, then you both contribute, you know, 50% to the joint pot that pays the bills. If one person makes, you know, 60% and the other person makes 40% of the income, then you split it sixty forty so that it it feels like it's even evenly distributed.
2: Then don't you have to have kind of like financial counseling with your with your partner? It, it sounds to me because you know uh, they. Well,
3: I again, I still believe every everybody on the planet needs to see a certified <laughs> financial planner. But yes, and especially before you get married, you also have to make sure that you're on the same page financially. Because as you know, most divorces, the big one of the big factors is fighting over money and I can tell you usually within five minutes of meeting a couple if they're compatible financially and guess what when they're not it's not going to last something is going to is going to really it's going to be enough to break them up down the future unless they one of them changes or gets counseling or whatever so for example if you know one's a one's a saver and one's a spender it's usually an issue you know, because you have to be on the same page about your goals. So let's just say, you know, one's a saver and one's a spender, and and I'll be a stereotype and I'll make the female a spender and the and the male a saver. So the male is going to want to save. Let's say, or let's say they both want to save for um, their kids' college, or um, I don't know, come up with any other goal that you want them to save for. But what's going to happen is the man's going to get very frustrated because he keeps saving and saving and saving. And then he keeps looking at the credit card bills month after month after month, and they're outrageous. And the next thing he knows, he's taking all the money that they saved for the college education and paying off credit cards.
2: It sounds so complicated. It sounds complicated. It sounds like, you know, people especially let's say in the beginning when you're in love and you just you just you know don't want to deal with these kinds of things but what you're saying it really i guess we just have to make it kind of a more of a spontaneous incorporated into just into what we do and to how we manage our lives right it
3: is and it's it's you know it's a matter of are you compatible financially period do you have the same goals do you have the same values do you have the same um Things that you'd like to spend money on. So, for example, my husband and I, um, we will spend money on travel, and the two of us absolutely, absolutely, absolutely love to travel. And you know, we try to go to Europe two times a year, and that's one of our you know splurges that we not even not even questioned. You know, and then we talk about our you know whatever financial decisions that we're going to make. We make them together, and we have the same views on. Um, what, what to spend our money on, what to save, where we want to live, how much we want to spend on our houses, all that kind of stuff, you've got to be on the same page because if you're not, it's just, it's a recipe for disaster going forward.
2: Yeah. Well, so you are really a, a psychiatric (laughs) financial counselor, I would call you. You know, I really think I am. It's funny
3: because, um,
2: I don't know if there is such
3: a word as a money therapist, but I do feel that, and most certified financial planners are, because you are dealing not just with the money. You're dealing with people, emotions, uh, fears, hopes, dreams, all of that stuff all rolled into one. And then sometimes you have to be a marriage counselor because you have to come in the middle and be the neutral party between the, between the couples.
2: Yeah, I think there's another thing too. When you have couples coming together, they come from entirely, or they can, not necessarily different backgrounds, and the way their, you know, whether parents or whomever raised them spends money that may be very different in, in in different households. So you have to, I think, I don't know if you deal with that when you're dealing with couples, but you really need to understand that as well because you may be coming from entirely different financial places and that makes a huge difference.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we have a uh, my firm United Capital. We have a a thing called uh findyourmoneymind.com and it's a free uh personality profile to figure out if you are fear happiness or commitment money mind. And you, you, anybody can do it. It's free at uh findyourmoneymind.com and it's interesting to see every couple should at least do it so that they can see if they're on the same page, you know, if if they are, um, what the other one is and what that means. So, you know, for example, if you're a happiness money mind, you know, you're going to be more interested in spending for today and not worrying about the future as much. And if you're a fear money mind, guess what? You're going to be doing the complete opposite. So that gets so that gets back to my whole thing about the differences between – and it doesn't necessarily have to be about the sexes. It has to be about the difference in what your, your bias is towards, if that makes sense, and why you make the decisions you make around money, subconsciously or consciously, mostly subconsciously.
2: Yeah, and I'm at the uh... – point where I have a lot of friends and relatives who are retiring or thinking of retiring. Women who now maybe were married at one time, but now they're single and haven't thought about all these things that you're talking about. And now thinking, when am I, if ever, can I retire? I, or I can't retire. I never really thought about it. I never right. really thought about, or, or, you know, losing the energy that I will, you know, and not feeling like I go on to work full time and really not planning ahead for that stuff. And then also, and I'm sure this is something that you cover, but You know, you get to be sixty, you may live another fifty years or another you know, another Yeah. And uh Well it's interesting because the way I broke out the book,
3: I did twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties. And unfortunately, I I sort of made it so that you're actually following my advice from the (laughs) twenties to the sixties. And by the if you haven't done anything by the time you're sixty, at that point you are running out of time. And it, there's less options to you. So that's what I, I always say. If I can impart one thing to to anybody who wants to listen is start in your 20s. The sooner you get a, a handle and become financially literate, the the more options and choices you have for the rest of your life.
2: Yeah, I, so I that's, the that's the
3: unfortunate part. If you haven't done anything by 60, Social Security is not going to take care of you. Now, it depends. Have you saved a little? You know, can you can you downsize? It's all about choices too. That's the other thing that we haven't really spoke about. But the other thing is that you know, can people live on social security? Maybe. Um, it's certainly not a living wage, but it depends if they have you know two people living with them together on the social security you know on a social security paycheck and they might have a little bit of other income, and they might have some part-time income, and they might have a modest lifestyle and still spending less than what they're bringing in, then guess what? They can. But are they going to live in New York City where, you know, the cost of, of rent and living is, you know, higher than almost, you know, every, every place else except for maybe San Francisco and Hawaii? You know, it depends. It's all about the choices of where you want to live. Do you want to move to a low-cost area? Do you want to be in an apartment? Do you want to be in a house? It's all a matter of all those choices. And then you also have health care issues yeah. as well, yeah. which is a huge cost so retirement. there are
2: lots and lots, obviously, we've just, t- I mean, we've touched kind of generally on all the issues, and our time is out, but it's been, I want to just, moneyqueenguide.com is the website I have for you as well. What you said, com that's yes. another website, which sounds great, and the book is the Money Queen's Guide for Women Who Want to Build Wealth and Banish Fear. So much to talk about, and, and uh, lots of great tips, just, you know, in the interview and also in the book, but... Carrie, thanks so much for being on the show this morning.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Yeah, we're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute.
3: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it will be 50 years from now.
1: You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
2: We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me, my second guest, is Dr. Johnny Lops. He's author of Reinvent Yourself, the Essential Tools from a Brooklyn Psychiatrist who has seen it all. Uh, he is a team psychiatrist or has been team psychiatrist for the Brooklyn Nets, and he is, um, he's been called a therapist psychiatrist. He's board certified in adult psychiatry and child and adolescent psychiatry. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Lops.
0: Yes, good morning. Thank you so much for having me.
2: And I guess you're also associated with Maimonides Medical Center?
0: I formerly was. Your I've just formula- recently got okay. there to continue my own services.
2: Okay, so Reinventing Yourself is one of the services, the essential tools from a Brooklyn psychiatrist who has seen it all. So, okay, premise of the book, what do you mean reinventing ourselves? Why do we need to reinvent ourselves? Obviously, as a psychiatrist, you see us generally as having a problem, Mm -hmm. um, that we are not necessarily as healthy or happy as we could be, Mm -hmm. and we need to get away from that and be healthier and happier as a culture, as individuals.
0: Yeah. So I, 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 as I've grown into be a psychiatrist and, you know, I, I've i spanned a, a good 10 years of being around psychiatry where there's different, you know, there's different types of uh, training I've had, whether it's the stronger psychopharmacologist who want to relinquish psychiatry from therapy and just be about medication. I've had more of the analytic psychiatrist who are more Freudian and and looking at things being more dynamic. I've had the CBT folks. I've just seen so many different uh, modalities of way to understand the human experience. That as I've grown, I found my voice. And and my voice, as I think I've been shaped as a child psychiatrist, is that invariably we're still all children uh, looking to accumulate skills during the course of our lives to uh, to be the best we can be, but recognizing that. Uh, those skill development is going to be limited based on, uh, parents, uh, who our parents were, what skills that they had during the course of their life, uh, traumas, uh, mentorship. And so a lot of what my book is trying to associate is that we might, we have to reflect on what we struggle with in this world. Um, and again, being a psychiatrist, a lot of that's going to have to do with uh, managing our emotions. But that we should always be insightful and almost being competitive with ourselves to recognize uh, like an athlete would like an actor would like a mu- like an entertainer would where do we need where can we improve and take responsibility and ownership of that and my book is sort of the guide to help start navigating uh, what tools uh, that I commonly see in my practice that people come to me uh, that they might be deficient in, to which I'm working with them to help them enhance that so that it's, life out there is a little easier for them.
2: Uh, so you're talking we don't necessarily have to be in mental dire straits. I mean, although millions of Americans do suffer from depression and anxiety, but right. we don't necessarily even have to be in that position. Just generally speaking, sometimes we make poor choices for ourselves. We don't live I mean, up to uh, our potential. Uh, And so we're not that happy, and you're saying, okay, this is how, in your experience, we can do it. So how do we do it? I mean, like you mentioned, a lot of different modalities, cognitive therapy, you know, psychoanalytic Mm -hmm. therapy, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But, okay, so you're just giving us, the general public, a way in which to improve our lives, Mm -hmm. you know, from a psychiatric point of view. So what do we do or what are we not doing, and then how do we do it well so we can be healthier and happier?
0: Well, the first thing that we're not doing is we're not asking questions. Uh, many folks walk around and they'll have uh, coffee with friends or they'll talk to their bosses or uh, talk to their partners and they'll make complaints. They'll say, this is not working out for me or this is hard or I find this challenging, but they're not asking, okay, so what is it along my growth and my development as a person that might have impacted why I struggle with this? and how? who are the right people, what are the right books to read, what are the right podcasts to listen to, What are if, it's, if it gets to the point, what are the right mental health clinicians I need to go see to work on this skill or this tool because I'm recognizing that uh, on a consistent basis uh, when things don't go my way I get angry or I'm always looking at things from a negative point of view or that um, I'm struggling to maintain relationships. Uh, or whining. I hear
2: so many people. You know, you talk about getting angry, and that's true. Mm-hmm. But I hear so many uh, whiners, uh, complainers, mm-hmm. as you say. Uh, you know, my, yeah. I don't like my job. I don't like my job. I, you know, I have girl. I you know, I have a friend who's constantly. So then I want to say, well, then just quit your job. <laughs> I want to <laughs> scream at her. But it's right. that kind of like stop. And you're but then, saying but stop. That's yeah. where you
0: have to take. Why do they do that? Uh, what is going on? That's where it goes into the next level of. Asking the questions, why can't she make a decision? Why can't she take ownership of her life? Um, Maybe she was enabled by her family her whole lives and they did things for her, so she never learned the skill to acknowledge that she has to be responsible for making choices, and now we have to work with her to work through the anxieties of being a risk taker and not being concerned about making mistakes. So regardless of one's whining or feeling a victim, there is a deficiency there. It's something that they didn't get accustomed to as a child, to which now they whine as opposed to being proactive and just going forth and making choices.
2: So if we just read your book, will that solve it, or do we have to go to a... Social worker, or a psychologist, or, or a, a therapist, in order to help ourselves, or can we just, you know, read like the essential well, tools? The,
0: the book is a good platform to start asking questions. Um, I do break it down with my own experiences and clinical experiences to help to guide the reader to feel a little bit uh, not alone and, and really say yes, this is like me. If they do that there are the recommendations and the tools for which um, they can begin to navigate that process. But, you know, of course, as a mental health practitioner, if the person's really struggling or they find that they need the guidance and support and someplace safe to go to to help navigate that, then utilizing a therapist, of course, would be uh, a great adjunct to it. But when I was in and my early 20s... Give us some 20s, examples,
2: Dr. Give us some examples in the book, like specific examples of you know, issues people will bring up. Well, let's just, let's just take an
0: example. It's in the book that's in my life. Uh, okay. The reason why, again, I think my book is so unique and I think the, the first of its kind is that I am the book. Uh, every chapter in the book is something that I went through because I was a whiner when I was 18 to 22 years old, and I was frustrated that things uh, I, I'd done exactly as my parents told me to do. I got an education. So why wasn't I happy? Why wasn't I successful? And it took me uh, realizing that there were things that I just because I did the right thing a lot of times doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to develop the success I was looking for. So an example is um, I'm 19 years old and I'm in college, and my parents always taught me that if I was a nice guy, I would have girlfriends. So I was a nice guy. I held doors open for women. I was pleasant. I was, uh, I'd speak to them and be curious about their lives, but I don't understand. No girl was asking me out. Uh, No one was asking me to go to their prom or be their date, and they were asking other people out. So I was angry. I didn't understand, you know, I'm doing what my parents told me to do. But there was something that I wasn't doing that was causing such a, uh, a deficit for me, and it took uh, a curiosity of a friend uh, who brought me into his room and said, hey, are you okay? And I pretty much told him what I was feeling. And he said, well, have you looked in the mirror recently? And I was like, no. He was like, bro, you're a good guy. And I like that you're a good guy, but look what you're wearing. And look looked in the mirror, and what am I wearing? I'm wearing uh, a, a Notre Dame sweatshirt and Notre Dame sweatpants. Uh, with, with basketball sneakers, and he said, listen, at 19 years old, this is probably not the fashion statement you want to be exuding out there, and I don't think people are going to find this attractive. But no one had ever taught me about fashion. No one had ever taught me that about the way we can put clothes together and whatnot. And so this, this example is in my chapter about mentorship, and that sometimes a lot of people walk around, the people that whine, as you say, thinking we know it all, that just because we've seen it and done it, that means the world should accommodate to it. And that was one of my first aha moments, that if we're struggling with something and it's not working out, why don't we seek out to mentors, find someone who looks like they do succeed in it, Ask them questions. Be curious about why it's working for them, but it's not working for you. And that was a, a very late teen transitionatory moment in my life that I understood clothes matter. <laughs> no one so when had you're ever, the, parents,
2: well that's a good example. But I'm Dr Lost I'm thinking like, okay, so you have to step outside your kind of your own mm-hmm. what universe. Like your parents are telling you one thing, but you're saying like pick somebody from the outside who has uh, you know more of an objective way of looking at you and who will share that with you. With, and yeah. so it, it's hard to do that. We get kind of locked into our I, I think locked into what we think is right. And mm-hmm. it's, it, yeah, and yeah. we but it's yeah. not. But that's the thing. No, but it's it's not, not hard.
0: It's not hard. Because I've done it a hundred times since then. All it takes is finding a person saying, "Hey, uh, how do you, how does that work for you?" It, it's really, but why don't people do it? Because they're there's, there's, they have a fractured narcissism, and they're afraid to expose themselves and have other people think that they're better than them. And that's that's another insecurity and low self-esteem. That obviously that person didn't develop the tools to navigate their emotions when asking these vulnerable questions.
2: Yeah. So fractured narcissism. I haven't heard the, that term. I probably should have as a social worker, but fractured narcissism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, define that again.
0: Well, because another issue that comes up in my practice a lot, and is that people automatically think the word narcissism means bad, and that's necessarily that's absolutely not true. There, narcissism is spectrum. There's healthy narcissism and not healthy narcissism. We need to love ourselves. It's absolutely indicative to healthy life. But when we have unhealthy narcissism, fear of, of people thinking that they're better than us, fear of having people see our insecurities, then we get stuck and we get anxious and we avoid and we don't let, let to expose uh, ourselves to the world um, and, and ask questions and be curious to work on ourselves because, as you said, These folks tend to believe that the way they do it should be right, and the world should accommodate to them, as opposed to um, being humble. This is fractured narcissism; is just another uh, fancy way of looking for humility, um, and be able to step outside of our comfort zone and find people that could help us succeed. And I've done. uh, I would absolutely say that this is probably the tool in my book that's helped me the most in my life. I've had about seven various mentors following that moment that absolutely shaped my life at different points that without them, I wouldn't be successful or where I am in this world.
2: Are sometimes the mentors that have done that a surprise, like you wouldn't expect that particular person to have done it? I know that sometimes in my life people who have affected me in, in the way that you're describing are people, I wouldn't have thought that that would be the person to do it, maybe just somebody mm-hmm. a real surprise for me. I, I don't know if that, you know, not... Somebody that I may have even chosen necessarily. People come into your life, and you have to, and you may be accepting of them, and suddenly they do change your life.
0: And that's a great point, and that's actually a huge part of my chapter on mentorship is that our mentors don't have to be uh, the LeBron James or the Bill Gates, Steve Jobs of the world. You never know; there might be a guy who, if you're working in a corporate office. Um, for I kind of make it comical, and I say there 's this character named Bob who works down the the corridor from you, and you know he might not be the V p or the head of the corporation, but anybody that 's had more experiences than you that might help give his story to guide how you should make your choices going along. Uh, your time in that corporate can be just as effective as talking to the superstar person. Any person that's seen a little bit more than we have has something to say about where they are in time and place, and we can all learn from ourselves from that.
2: Well, I had an example the other day when of' the person who and I probably shouldn 't share this, but the person who colors my hair he gave me some <laughs> great advice, really, really good advice that I didn 't think would come from him, but it was uh, really important stuff and mm-hmm. uh, you know I w- we were just chatting, but I was actually listening and um, i mean th- i mean that 's kind of the examples that you 're talking about or uh, can be an example that's,
0: that's one that 's absolutely one of the examples that anybody can be a mentor to us if they Seen something or done something in the realm of what you're seeking advice for that maybe you've never navigated before. Right, so, um, this
2: is all, and you describe it in the book as a process of self discovery. What else can we do? Okay, the mentoring, um, I mean, because obviously there's a lot other, you know, in your process of self discovery. Right.
0: So, yeah. I, we'll start with, you know, chapter one is the most important chapter of the book. It's the platform of the book, which is recognizing that our, thought, our thoughts are not always our best friends. A lot of people walk around uh, with a very uniform way of looking at the world. That just because they think it, it's true. And we've, again, going within myself and with all the folks that have become uh, have been successful clients of mine, it's teaching ourselves that just because we think it, does not necessarily mean it's true, and that we have to learn, like, to become a detective, like a Sherlock Holmes and really get good at walking around challenging our thoughts, that any time a thought comes into our head, we have to, before we act on it, we have to try to understand what's the underlying ideology of it, and is it in our best interest to have that thought? I give the simple example of if I'm driving down the highway and someone cuts me off, and I am about to become angry and I want to send some expletives towards his way, uh, because I think he's a jerk for cutting me off. Well. Before I start labeling him a jerk already and going along this angry trajectory, is he really a jerk? And I know my, I know that's what I thought, but and I think he's a jerk because he almost caused me to be in an accident, but being a detective, be like Sherlock Combs, um, how do I know he didn't just get a call five minutes ago that his father has only a few minutes to live in the hospital and he has to get there? How do I know that? How do I know that his wife is not about to give birth? Uh, at uh, another location, and he can't just, you know, go 40 miles per hour on the road. So if we get into the habit of asking those type of questions, we might be able to be more calm and and not be so angry and irritable when things, uh, experiences like this happen that invariably shape the way we feel about our days and how our our time progresses.
2: Okay. Well, uh that, and don't have a knee-jerk reaction is what you're saying. Really think mm-hmm. about it. Like, take a breath yeah. and think about it. And I think that's a good example. Okay. You have, I guess, in the book, 11 described as simple, practical, and effective tools. Mm-hmm. So, have we described just like a couple of them? Or, you know, once we, if we can go through all 11 in our daily, in what, in the day or in the process of our evolving, then we should be okay in terms of reinventing ourselves, being healthier and, and Happier.
0: Well, like I said, uh, these are the eleven tools that I see the most common in my practice uh, over my five years of being in New York City, working with some of the most famous people in the world to, you know, people who are very stressed from lower socioeconomic and are uh, folks in the other side of Brooklyn, New York. And there are also the accumulation of this eleven tools that I utilized uh, from my traumatic childhood that I have found as I've become and nurtured myself as a psychiatrist that facilitated my growth. Um, you know, we're not talking about the fact that the book is written out of the realm of I was uh, born in a low-middle-class family uh, with no, um, you know, no services or assistances. My parents, we didn't have any wealth. My parents don't have any networking capabilities. There's no nepotism that was utilized to enhance my life. Um, by the time I was 11 years old, I was shot at, robbed at knife point. A gang tried to blow me up. So if anybody is going to have traumas that should have impacted their ability to grow and uh, and not become successful in this world, it was going to be me. But these tools, through the process, somehow being around good people and asking questions and being curious and challenging my thoughts and trying to minimize feeling like a victim, I, able, I was able to be uh, hardworking enough to navigate my stressors and come out the other side with a pretty successful adult life.
2: Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, obviously you've done a great job, and I think another thing, just stress, stressing the importance of what you're talking about and also in your book is that, uh, and I think there's a lot of new studies and research that shows this, but that these negative emotions really have a physical cost. I mean, not just immediately, but apparently over time, like, you know, childhood traumas, even ones that don't appear to be horrific, you know, like uh, sexual abuse or uh, even having alcoholic parents or whatever, or horrible divorces, even less traumatic events have an Mm -hmm. effect on your health in later life, cancer, heart disease. Um, I think that's a new area that it's just beginning to be researched and studied, so it's really important to do, as you say, kind of get a hold of it in the beginning. And um, right, yeah,
0: right. I mean, just don't forget, you one in four people that walk into their PMD today or their their, their primary practitioner, uh, their mental, their physical conditions are going to be a manifestation of emotional stress. Twenty five percent. It's a lot, and we're still not there, where we're edu- the people are educated enough to look into their physical symptoms and ask confidently that this is probably stress-related, probably anxiety, and I should be going to talk to somebody and not hoping to get a medical script from their primary care physician. Um, And
2: it's over time, over time. I think, you know, this kind of short-term thinking in terms of, well, I had something horrific, you know, some stress happened to me, so that's why I'm not feeling well or I get migraines or whatever my thing is. But it's really not just something that happens, you know, the way you're handling your stress in the immediate in the moment, but over months and years, and and then it it adds up, and it does affect our health, our physical health.
0: Correct. I saw a great case last week. I mean, great. I mean, it was interesting as a clinician, but it was really sad. I saw a young man who, for three years, has been shopped around from so many different clinicians. Uh, from a pain management doctor to a neurologist to a rheumatologist to an endocrinologist, uh, to a gastroenterologist. And only the, I believe only the gastroenterologist asked him about stressors when this all started three years ago. And three years ago, his dad was having severe financial issues. His sister had a pretty significant trauma and his best friend passed away. All, at, all within a week, and he, because he was young and ignorant at the time, he, you know, he started, these all came manifest as physical problems, and the doctors just started doing a three-year parade of all these tests. And uh, I looked at him, and I was like, you hey, know, it's heartbreaking. I'm really sorry to tell you this, but I don't think there's anything wrong with you, and I think this is all anxiety and, and so forth. Uh, I plan to write an article about this, about how even our medical professionals are still not up to speed about not continuing to navigate the medical route and spending money mm-hmm. and giving those type of interventions when it's most likely a manifestation. I mean, they could have done their work, but one of them should have at least said, why don't you just go speak to a psychiatrist mm-hmm. and, and get a sense if that person thinks that this is uh, an anxiety construct. And I, I've been working with him for a week already, and he's already feeling better.
2: So your next book has to be, and we have to say goodbye because we have a minute left, but your next book has to be, uh, I guess maybe it has to be directed at, uh, at physicians, reinvent yourself, and then you have to give them the essential tools. <laughs> uh, how to reinvent yourself. So much money themselves. is already being
0: spent on that.
2: <laughs> yeah. So that the same, so that it doesn't happen what happened to your, your client or to your patient, but, yeah. um, Dr. Johnny Lops, reinvent yourself, the essential tools from a Brooklyn psychiatrist who has seen it all. Great to have you on the show today. Lots of good advice. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're going to uh, have to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zock, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday.